Thank you for downloading this podcast, one of a series about body arts produced by the Pitt Rivers Museum at the University of Oxford. Dr Vibha Joshi specialises in Naga culture. Together with Julia Nicholson, the Pitt Rivers Museum's joint head of collections, she looks at the hair and body ornaments, as well as the tattoos, worn by these indigenous people of northeast India. They discuss the importance of status, the unique traditions of different Naga groups, and the effects of colonisation and conversion to Christianity upon their culture. For anybody who doesn't yet know, it's, um, Nagaland is an area in northeast India, on the very far tip, on the border with Burma. And it's a hill, hill area. Viva has researched in this area for over 20 years. We're starting from the first case within the body arts displays at the Pitt Rivers Museum. And we're looking at a very decorative chest ornament from Nagaland. Yes, it is from the Angami people, and we must remember this, all these objects were collected uh, during the British colonial time. So they are actually, with the passage of time, these objects are not used anymore. But this very beautiful decorative object relates to the warrior status. It is worn on the chest, it has uh, goat's hair dyed red dangling down, and on the sides, and there are two horn-like extensions with very beautifully decorated circles with again tassels of goat's hair dyed red. Uh, the centerpiece is decorated with very white shiny seeds of job steers. This was a crop that was grown specially for its decorative seeds uh, which were used to decorate objects. This particular ornament is worn by young men during festival time sometimes even during war raids to frighten the enemy just by the dazzle of the dress. But uh, usually it would be worn during the major annual festival of Sekrini. And it would be worn by a very good warrior who has achieved the highest status. And it cannot be worn by just, just ordinary man. You have to be a good warrior who has actually been able to kill a man during the war. Right, most, most of these pieces actually were collected in the sort of very early 20th century, weren't they, when there was a lot more kind of warrior-related activity going on in that area. They were particularly collected by a man called John Henry Hutton and subsequently by James Philip Mills. And they were collecting very early part of the 20th century, you know, from about 1910 onwards to about 1930 or so. But they were working in Indian administrative civil service Yes, actually the British um, made inroads into what used to be called Naga Hills and it related to tea production in Assam because the Nagas used to raid villages not just to uh, gain slaves but also to take livestock and when the tea gardens were made these tea gardens covered the tracts, the jungles, the forests that were actually used by the hill people so the raids were done in a way to, um, to assert that these tracts belonged to them. And the British expeditions went in um, to stop these raids, to take the land away, but also to explore the region for natural resources. At that time, it was East India Company in the 1840s. And when these objects were collected, it was the early 1900s. By then, this area was already under the British control and uh, the political officers were there to make sure that the peace continued because outside the British, ad British administration there were still wars and raids going on and uh, the British have talked about head hunting but it was not that everyone was cutting each other's head all the time but these were the raids and during which 
as a part of fertility rite and initiation rite, some communities also took uh, human heads. Yeah. There and was certainly and a bit of tribal warfare, wasn't there? <laughs> Which I think yeah. they, over the years, over a sort of the decades, that gradually disappeared from that area. Yes, these tribal raids were banned by the British because mm. they wanted peace in the, in the region. And uh, some of the objects, therefore, um, reflect a kind of uh, status which has come to be known as headhunting status, but it's actually uh, rightfully called the warrior status, a successful warrior. There's a number of other objects, actually, in different cases which reflect that status. So we can move along and talk about the boar's tusks. There's a really interesting neck ornament here, which is made from boar's tusks. You can see the curvature of the, the boar's tusk would go round the neck of a person with a really attractive cornelian at the front. Can you tell us a bit about the, um, the meaning of that? You know, who would wear that sort of necklace? Well, these necklaces, especially this particular piece, uh, was worn by a community of Sema Nagas. Now, Nagas have several different communities. They're not one people. So when we say Naga, they are comprised of um, 16 communities within India and several others uh, outside India and outside Nagaland. Uh, this one is um, the warrior status, and only a warrior would wear this. But in some other communities, a rich person who has given feasts, that person would be allowed to wear this necklace. Among the Ao Naga, James Mills, who was one of the British officers and ethnographers there, mentions in his monograph that uh, the young men got around wearing this particular ornament by having to pay a certain amount to the village council to earn the right. Because most of the ornaments here on display are ornaments of achievement, either in war or in cultivation and giving of feasts to your clan members mm. and village. And are they still use these, these oh, boar's yes. tusks? It's very interesting. Now, uh, most of the Nagas are Christian of the American Baptist sect, and some are Catholic. Some are now Revival Church and Pentecostal Church has also made inroads. And the first thing to go was traditional ornaments because they were all related with the older way of life. But these ornaments have now become a kind of identity marker and during festivals, young Christian men wear these ornaments and wear the whole dress actually. But yes, bowls are not that common anymore in the Nagaland forests and replacements have been used. Yeah, it's interesting actually that in the recycling display case, which is just around the corner from the body arts display, there's an interesting necklet which is made from part boar's tusk and part enamel plate. So it's got the same idea but using quite different materials. And I understand that even later than that, plastic was just the replacement for the boar's tusk. So. Yes, that's right. And now shall we look at these other ornaments that are there? Oh, there's another one uh, from the same community, uh, Angami. This is again a warrior's ornament. It's very beautiful because it's got these beetle wings on it they're kind of iridescent, sort of turquoise green colour. They look rather like jewels. Yeah, certainly the Naga ornaments are, on the whole, very decorative and beautiful. Uh, yes, and necklaces just made of these rings were also worn. And in some of the collections we find uh, in textiles, these beetle rings were, were sewn in to give a nice jingling, jangling effect. Mm. We're now at the showcase that's devoted to hair and Half of this case is just devoted to material from Nagaland. But right at the top, there are two very curious wigs. And I was kind of puzzled when I looked at them, thinking, are they 
wigs for men or wigs for women or what were they used for? Do you know much about the wigs for them? Oh yes, um, some of the Naga men uh, were quite vain and they would wear the wigs like we do now to cover a bald, bald head. And black hair is really cherished in Nagaland. Mm. So grey hair is generally plucked out or you wear a wig made out of human hair. Now these human hair could be donated by, by a woman who has cut hair mm. or collected by actually um, mixing bear's hair with human hair and then putting it on a frame. Yeah. I see that there's another piece of hair which is a little bundle of hair for, for use by women. And it's alongside a sort of skein of, of very long hair. I think very long hair was, was um, value amongst women in, in Nagaland at, at that time, in, in the sort of 1920s or so. Oh yes, the Naga women, especially some groups, um, they had a custom where the young girls kept hair very short, even completely shaven. But once they reached puberty, they were allowed to grow hair till, say, above, till below the ears. And once they got married, they were allowed to grow their hair. So it was a status of being a married woman. And again, uh, the women, to make their hair look very thick, uh, they would keep the brushings, mm. the hair that come out during brushing, keep them aside and plant them into long ropes, which they could then insert, just like we do insertions these days, the girls' hair. Hair extensions. Hair, hair extensions, extensions is yes. still a big fashion here, so it sounds like the same as that. But in the middle of the case are some rather curious hair ornaments that don't look like hair ornaments at all. One of them looks almost like a brush that you'd use to clean your back. It's a, it's a long wooden object with a, with a sort of brushy bit at the end, the sort of size of a large shoe brush. I mean, it's a large thing. It's not like a tiny hair ornament to put in your hair, is it? It's like half the size of a cricket bat. And there's another ornament just underneath it, the size of a, a computer keyboard. So these look like large, significant ornaments. It's a bit puzzling as to how on earth they were used. Yes, it is. But these ornaments were worn by a group of Naga called the Konya. And there the men kept very long hair. And it was their hair that was wound around the middle of these pieces. In the middle there was no decoration. The hair would be wrapped around the middle so the extensions would stick out. And these decorative aspects actually relate to the person's status and would be worn only by the men from the chief's clan. So just looking at a man's hair decoration, you would be able to tell that the person belongs to the chief's clan and has had taken part in raids. And you'd be able to see that from some distance. If you saw him from some distance, you'd be able to see one end of the, the hair ornament has this red, black and white tufted hair decoration. The middle bit would be his own hair wound round. And the other end, again, has got red, black and white tufted ornamentation that one is pretty impressive, and the other ornament's also impressive and large. But these were used by men, and they would want the hair ornament to stick out so that when they're sitting, you can see the side spits that are sticking out from either side of the head. Mm. It's supposed to be visually very attractive. The whole Naga ceremonial costume is a very attractive display yeah. of their workmanship. Mm. Not all of the pieces in this case are actually got hair on them, there are other pieces that uh, are used for cutting hair. The piece right at the bottom of the showcase, which I'd looked at before and thought, what on earth is this? Because it looks very strange. It's got little tangs at, each, at one end, um, like a sort of skewer or something from a barbecue. 
and at the end of these are seeds which look rather like conkers and apparently it's a hammer yes it is we have around seven seeds uh, from a particular pod of a creeper which was related with fertility and that means increase in the population of the village but also increase in the cultivation increase in the yields in the fields and related to these were the raids that were carried out on other villages and this particular hammer was used by the home group of Nagas to cut the hair of a young man who had come back after his first successful village raid and his hair would be cut using this to tap on a very sharp machete uh, called Dao and while tapping the beans would make a sound mm. and uh, after cutting the hair in a particular style this hammer would be put in the men's house where all the young men from that particular clan would gather for the night time. We're now by the showcase which has got head, neck and breast ornaments uh, mostly from Nagaland. Very decorative and very colourful but there's a huge array of materials used here isn't there Fever? Yes that's right and the materials are ranging from cowrie shells to big sea shells, conch shells, uh, cornelian, coral, bone spaces and porcupine quills. The material that has always surprised me actually with looking at a lot of the red and yellow or ornamentation like, like the cane ornamentation is that the yellow work is done with orchid stems and this is not orchid stems that have been dyed but this is the natural yellow colour of the orchid stems so that red and yellow patterning is very striking. Yes, indeed, and there's a process where the green orchid stem is wrapped around a piece of bamboo and left for a certain number of days and then unwrapped. And when you unwrap that and peel it, you see a very shiny yellow. Presumably not all these materials were to be found in Nagaland. Were some of them traded? Oh yes, the, the cowrie shells came from plains and so did the conch shells. And the Nagas had trading relationship with the plains people in Assam. They also traded uh, salt and chili and their own cane work mats in exchange for cowries, for metal scraps, which were also used to make some metal ornaments. Mm. Uh, there's interesting ways of sort of slightly adapting them as well, like the carry shells in that ornament here are kind of completely flat. You always imagine carry shells to be like a peanut-sized thing. Yes, they were actually uh, flattened against a rock so that they would sit very smoothly. And also, they're supposed to depict uh, enemy's teeth. We're now in front of one of the cases that's devoted to armlets and anklets from Nagaland. This one here has got some really spectacular anklets and leggings. The ones right in front of me, actually, are quite striking. They're almost the size of the, the sort of rugby sock, I would say, but completely made of cane work and orchid stem. Yes, these are very finely made, and the interesting thing is the case actually displays the method of making them. It's a bit like a shoe last, isn't it? Because you've got like the wooden stalk that the leggings are made round, but it's rather similar to a shoe last. I mean, that's sort of typical of Bitrim's Museum, really, showing you don't just show the final product, but you show how it's made. Yes, it's very interesting because and when you say it's typical of Pitrivo's museum, it was actually the first director of the museum, Balfour, who also visited this area in 1920s. And then he requested certain items and they show very specifically the stages in the manufacturing and have very detailed information that was collected by especially the two collectors, 
male sanghati. Yes. We're standing in front of the showcase on tattooing and there are a number of implements and photographs in this case. And right at the top there are two drinking vessels which show very distinct patterns which seem to be echoed in some of the figures which show that same pattern down their chest. Can you expand on that, Baba? There are two photographs here of two elderly men, one in ceremonial costume and the other person in ordinary day-to-day -day costume uh, holding his grandson who is wearing Western clothing. Now the interesting aspect is both these men have tattoos. One man, he has a full facial tattoo and this was done only specific warriors who had actually killed an enemy. And this man was, at the time I took this photograph, it was 20 years ago, he was already in his 80s. This is not seen anymore. You see only very elderly cognac men with this kind of facial tattoo. They also tattooed their chests and the arms. And these tattoos were done by the chief's wife. So that is very interesting because not in every community the women are doing the tattooing. It's a very distinct motif, isn't it, on his chest? And it's a sort of V-shape. You can see exactly the same motif on the bamboo drinking vessels right next to that photograph. Yes, the bamboo mug is from a different Naga community, Pong. And the photograph belongs to this person from a Naga community called Kimingan, which is at the border of Indo-Burma. And this also reflects the close relationship of certain communities with each other. Uh, they have similar material culture. And this um, tattoo is like a stylized face of a particular kind of bison that is very mm. cherished in this area. It's called Mithu. Right. What about women, though? Would they have got, had tattoos at all? Oh, yes, women did have tattoos, but not in all communities. We find tattooing more in the northern Naga communities, and the women, the tattoos they had on their faces and arms and legs uh, showed which clan they belonged to and also the status in life. Uh, when they achieved puberty, they had some tattoos done. And then after marriage, they had tattoos done. Uh, nowadays, we see very few women because uh, most have converted to Christianity. So with that, some older practices have died out. But uh, curiously, um, the young urban Nagas, educated Christian Nagas, they have adapted the Western way of tattooing. And they go to the um, tattooing parlors. And they have uh, tattoos on their ankles, um, on their on their breasts, on their backs, and just like any any modern youth, anyway. Yeah. <laughs>